Well, good morning, church. As we begin this morning, I have to admit that uh, as I was working on the sermon this week in my office, I was reminded once again of why it is so important to, to have a regular diet of preaching through entire books of the Bible. And I know sometimes it takes long. We've been in Acts for a while, right? And in preaching through books, we're not, we're not saying that systematically preaching through books means we never have topical series. We do. But one of the things about preaching through entire books is you cannot run away from the things that you run into. Right? There are certain topics we have to take on because they come up in the text, and they are topics that we would probably never choose to engage if we were just putting together a topical series. How often are you going to take and preach a sermon on the end of chapter 15 in Acts where Paul and Barnabas divide their ministry up over their, their problem over John Mark? Or today, how often are we going to wrestle with God preventing the gospel's advance into Asia and Bithynia in chapter 16, where we're at today? Where God says, no, I don't want you to take the gospel into this new region. I mean, I mean just think about it. Does that bother you at all? I mean, we can kind of just read through God's word, we can kind of move through the narrative, and we can see what happens, and we can see people get saved, but, 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 but something happens before they ever get to Macedonia, and that's because God says no. And it's not like Paul is outselling encyclopedias. He's not selling vacuums. He's not peddling Girl Scout cookies. Right? He's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's bringing a message of salvation. Jesus lived and died and rose again for sinners and God will forgive you and forever restore you to himself and guarantee you eternal life if you turn and trust in Jesus as your only hope of salvation. That's the message. It's the gospel. Without it, there's no life. There's no hope. Even more. Paul's very ministry he's involved in is a direct result of Jesus' commission to him on the road to Damascus. His life has been set apart for this very task. He's doing what God has called him to do. He's doing what the church in Antioch at the end of chapter 15 has just commissioned him to do. And if we move away from Paul specifically and his ministry team, and we shift our focus to the actual people that live in Asia and Bithynia at this very moment of history, we are talking about the eternal destinies of people who are lost in their sin and destined to wrath apart from the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, see these are real things that come into play in this account, and they're not, they're not easy things. And on the surface... On the surface, it can, it can appear, it can feel like God is, is somehow actually in opposition to his express command to make disciples of all nations. It, it can seem like that. But as we press into this passage this morning, I think Luke is going to help us see. He's going to help us see something very important. And it's that God's people are called to dedicated and passionate evangelism. We are called to that. Yet, 
At the same time, our efforts are wholly dependent on God's timing and the Spirit's empowering grace. That's the balance that we're going to see in the text today. So let's begin in the text with this, this, what seems to be a paradoxical restriction in Acts chapter 16, beginning in verse 6. And they went out to the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to Mysia, they attempted to go into a Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, not going into Mysia, they went down to Troas. Let's just stop there. Now, now as we dig into this account this morning, we, we need to recognize that these three short verses record an incredibly long journey. In fact, I got a couple maps up here. I didn't quite walk through this. We'll see if I can do this with the maps and everything. But if we bring up the maps, Paul and Barnabas, they separate. We saw that happen last week. Barnabas goes down to Cyprus, and from Antioch, Paul starts going up through Tarsus, his hometown, and keeps working north. That first journey north up to Tarsus, roughly 85 miles. But then we have if we go from all the way up to Antioch to Lystra, which is where Paul ends his period of time encouraging the churches that they've been through, up to Lystra, we're talking about 270 miles from Antioch. So, so the journey, just in their encouraging of the churches and, and helping them move forward in their discipleship, bringing them the decision that was made from Jerusalem in, in, in Acts chapter 15, that's 270 miles. And that's where their journey north begins, on the missionary journey. Now they're going to start breaking new ground. They're going to start carrying the gospel even farther because they know that this isn't the end. It's 320 miles from Lystra to this region of Phrygia and Galatia. Just just look how far they're going up. And it's another 200 miles from this region of Galatia to Troas. So, So to put it in perspective... We're we're, we're talking that their journey from Antioch to Troas is covering roughly 790 miles. That's 75% of the distance they covered in the entire journey on the first missionary trip. And to put it in in, in perspective of, of modern distances, we're talking about walking from Silverdale to San Francisco. Okay? Silverdale to San Francisco. And it's not because Paul and his team weren't trying. No, the text is clear. The Holy Spirit prevented his team from proclaiming the gospel in the regions of Asia and Bithynia. And we find ourselves asking the question like, why? Why? I mean, I mean, I mean is, God, is this an expression of God's anger at Paul for his, his conflict with Barnabas over John Mark? I mean, is, is, is that what's going on? Paul, you treated Mark really bad. I'm not going to give you any progress. Is God some, in some way angry with the regions of Asia and Bithynia that he would withhold the gospel from them? Is there hidden sin in Paul's team? You know, like Achan after Jericho and the battle of Ai? Is there, is there hidden sin? Is God forging this new group of missionaries into a team so that they will trust him and his leading instead of their own skills? We don't know. 
scholars propose ideas. We could walk through them, but I don't think they'd be super helpful because the Bible doesn't tell us. We're not told why. In addition to this, you know what Luke doesn't tell us? He doesn't tell us how. How do they recognize the Holy Spirit's will? How do they know that the Spirit closed the door? How do they know that they were being prevented? I mean, did the the missionaries receive some strong inward sense of direction? Did God use external circumstances like like illness or Jewish oppression or or legal ban? Did, Did he make his will known through the utterance of one of the people on their team? We're told earlier in chapter 15, verse 32, that Silas is a prophet. Luke doesn't tell us. We, we just don't know. And I think in this Luke appear, like Luke is emphasizing at least two things. I think he wants to make it very clear in this journey that goes all the way to Macedonia to begin with, he wants us to understand that they had no intention of going to Macedonia. But like we can ask a lot of questions we don't have answers to, but there's something that's very clear. They had no intention of going there. In fact, when we, when we see the maps that we walked through, we can understand why. It was a long journey, and there were many regions along the way that needed to hear the gospel. It made sense that they should go, you know, preach the gospel as they're moving out. Yet the text tells us the Spirit of the Lord prevents them from following the most obvious route of ministry to the, most, the places that they can access. But he does it for a purpose. That's how the story develops, right? He does it for a purpose. It's not merely closing doors, he's opening doors. He wants them to direct them to a place that he has for them. In fact, we actually see a similar pattern happen in the lives of some modern missionaries. Let me just list three. David Livingston. We know him for all of his work in Africa. Do you know where he wanted to go and where he tried to go first? China. How about William Carey? We know him for his work in India. Do you know where he wanted to go and where he was trying to go? He was trying to go to Polynesia in the South Seas. How about, how about the great missionary Adoniram Judson? We know him for his work in Burma, a place that I've spent time working. Do you know where he started? India. That's where he wanted to be. So, so we, we, we see this happen. It's not that this is something that only God did back in the day. It's something that God does today. Intentions to go in one direction and God sends them another direction. But I think the second thing that Luke also wants us to see is he wants to see something about this team. They're wholly dependent upon and submissive to the leading and direction of the Holy Spirit. How did they sense it? We don't know. But they're not fighting against it. They're, they're, it's not making sense. All they know is closed. And we've got to understand that so many times in our lives, all we know is the door is closed. We don't know where an open door is. It's closed. And they're facing closed door after closed door after closed door. Almost 800 miles of closed doors. But they continue on their route in faith. Trusting and hoping that God is going to clarify their path when he is ready to do so. 
Notice they don't stop doing ministry. They don't stop. They keep going. They know there's something they've been called to do and they're doing it. We get to Acts 16, verse 9, and they receive an answer. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now these two short verses are not only an important development in the story, but but they're an incredible encouragement for anybody who's ever had to struggle through frustrating periods of closed doors. See, as we've already seen, the Spirit actively blocked and defied every direction that Paul and his team have pursued in their God-honoring, gospel-centered initiative to proclaim the gospel in regions north of Lystra. And I have no doubt. Like, Like they're walking in faith, but I have no doubt at the very same time that they're, they're getting tired, they're getting frustrated. Maybe they're starting to wonder, like we do, God, why are you wasting my time? God, we are wasting precious resources. Do you think it was a cheap thing back in the day to walk 790 miles? All the lodging, all the food, all the necessities, they've spent a significant amount of money. And up until the time they received this vision, they're in Troas. They have no idea what's going on, what God is going to do. And it really seems like, like, like we've wasted our time so far. We haven't planted a single church. We have no record of a single disciple being made. Nobody coming to faith. And I have no doubt that in this church there are some of you that have felt like that or feel like you're in that spot today. Maybe it's not as ministry specific as Paul. But you feel like you're there. But in this very development, in in Paul's life and in his team's ministry journey, we're able to see that God is not focused on their efficiency. He's He's not worried about their efficiency. You know the other thing he's not worried about? Their resources. Not worried about their resources. He's not even worried about their destination. He's got that handled. And we look at this and it's been such an inefficient journey. But God isn't worried because he's a God who's focused on the journey. God does much of his work in our lives and the life of his servants in God's word on the journey not at the end. See, see, in God's providence, the journey is the very place that God prepares us to be the kind of people we need, we, we need to be when we arrive at the destination. 
God doesn't waste time. He's still working, just not in ways that we're always contemplating. He's conforming us into the image of his son. He's doing work in our hearts and our minds. Even though we feel like we're wasting our time. And yes, in the case of Paul and his team, it's very possible that Paul is developing and increasing their trust and their reliance on him. Paul's a super gifted dude, right? He also seems to be able to just, just, he has this kind of personality where he seems like he's just ready to run into a hail of bullets and keep going. Even if the rest of his team's not ready to go. But in this, it seems like Seems like God might be working on their faith and their trust and their reliance on Him. And so we look at our lives. And we're we're in periods of waiting like this. We don't know. The thing is, is no matter how much we've grown in our Christian life, no matter what God has done with us in the past, there's countless ways for you and I to grow greater into the likeness of Christ and Christian maturity today. God isn't done working in our lives. And where does this growth and this development often happen? It happens in the waiting. It happens in the waiting. Because what happens, what, what goes on in our hearts in the waiting? We, we actually have to wrestle with hard things. And what, what, what is God, God calling us to do and, and often forcing us to do is to abandon our self-sufficiency. And we are really self-sufficient people. We make plans and we have plans for the plans backup plans for the backup plans. But what happens when all those blow out and nothing works? Sometimes God is showing us how insufficient we are for the task at hand and the fact that we need to trust him. And he lovingly prepares us to follow his direction when it arrives. See, see, this is where Paul and his team seem to be when they arrive at Troas. I mean, as you saw on the map, it is kind of an end destination, right? They're kind of at the end of the road, like, okay, God, now what? But it seems like right when he gets in there, they're ready. They're ready. That's when he gives them the vision. And it arrives. And they know where to go. You know, and, and just, just an aside on, on the vision here, this is kind of a little set aside here is we, we don't want to be coming to this text and expecting that every time we need direction that we we're, need to be looking for visions, because even, in the, even throughout the entire book of Acts, there's only five people who receive visions. Five. Yet if you read through, I actually didn't take the time to list it all out, there's probably at least 10 to 12 different ways that God demonstrates and works with his people to give them direction throughout the book of Acts. He, he works through a variety of different ways. As one commentator helpfully observes, God's guidance comes down many different paths. The biggest mistake we can make as Christians, though, is, is often made. It's to imagine that God will, God's will for our lives is always going to be communicated to us in precisely the same way. 
We kind of expect it always the same way. You know, back in the day, I was needing something, God revealed it this way. And we think that's the way it's going to come again. That's not how God works. No. No, there is no one method by which God guides his people. He's free to use whichever means he so chooses. Therefore, the most important thing that we can do is respond in obedience to when we discern his direction. And and that's what Paul and his team did. That's how they did. But this still leaves us with the unsettling question before we go to Macedonia. Why? Why did God close doors to ministry in areas that need the gospel and send them to Macedonia? Well, if we place this this account in the broader storyline of Acts, Luke seems to be highlighting something for us. He seems to be highlighting the simple but mysterious fact that God's priority, here's the key, at this moment in time, God's priority at this moment in time was to send the gospel to Macedonia and Greece before it's proclaimed in the other regions. I mean, I mean that's just that's in the text. We're not told why, we're told it is, we're told it's a priority. God wants it there first. And it's important, something to point out here. Because we could really get hung up and not realize that actually at the end of this very missionary journey, in Acts chapter 18, Paul actually proclaims the gospel in Asia. So, so the closed door in Asia is not a closed door for life. It's not a closed door for a century. It's not a closed door even for a decade. It's a closed door for a period of months, year. Acts 18, starting in verse 19. This is on their journey back. And they came to Ephesus. And he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. This is Paul. And when they asked him to stay longer, period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, get this, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. He's like, well, I tried this once. God didn't open the door. I've come here. God allowed it. We'll see if God allows me to come back. If God wills. And if we follow the story, we know that God wills. God did will the gospel to go to Asia because Paul has a significant period of fruitful ministry in Asia on his third missionary journey. Acts 19. For the sake of time, just one verse, verse 10 initially. This continued for two years. This is Paul proclaiming in, in, this, in this lecture hall. It's in, it's in Ephesus. He continued two years so that all the residents of where? Asia. All the residents of Asia. The very place that the Holy Spirit forbid him to go. Now here we here are here on the third missionary journey and all the residents of Asia have heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Not closed forever. Let's go down to verse 25. We have the interaction with Demetrius the silversmith. Most of us are familiar with that. Cause a riot in Ephesus. So speaking of Demetrius, these he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. We're selling silver statues of Artemis. 
And you see and you hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of where? Asia. This Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. Massive gospel impact in Asia. We can even get down to to 1 Peter and Peter's, Peter's epistle. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia and Asia and Bithynia. What, what? Churches are in Bithynia. Churches are in Asia. And why are they? They're according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. This is part of God's plan. It's part of God's work. God is doing this. This is good in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus and for the sprinkling of blood. With his blood, pardon me, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Gospel totally goes into these areas and is fruitful when people get saved. So it's it's a matter of timing. That's what we see in the text. So in the big picture, the Holy Spirit, when he forbids Paul from going into these areas, he's not contradicting the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28. He's not contradicting Jesus' own words in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. He's not doing that either, no. No, Acts makes it very clear that this delay that we see in our passage today was a matter of God's good and sovereign timing. Though he never tells us why it's good. He doesn't tell us. We, we never get an explanation. God doesn't give us his rationale. And this shouldn't be very surprising because of what God has revealed about himself in his word. Christian, there are tensions that we inevitably run into in God's word. Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord. Moses speaking to the children of Israel as they're getting ready to go into the promised land. Secret things belong to the Lord. He's saying there's things about the counsel of God's will and his ways and his workings that you are never going to know. You cannot find out. Secret things. But the things that have been revealed belong to us and to our children forever. And what is the purpose? That why we might do all the words of this law. Simply put, The things that God has not revealed are not the things that we're supposed to spend all of our time trying to figure out. There may be tensions. There may be hard things. He's God. But you know what? He's revealed countless things to us. And in in the case of Israel, they had the law. In the case for us, we have the entire Bible. That God has revealed clearly countless things for us to do. And he says, therefore do them do them and obey them. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. 
Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. God's saying, yeah, I realize that any number of humans throughout the history of the world are going to say, I could never fathom a God that would fill in the blank, right? I could never fathom a God that would X. I can't believe that a God would... It's like God saying, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. There's things that you are going to think that are impossible. I'm not going to explain them to you. I'm just going to tell you that as I reveal myself, you need to embrace them. Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depths and the ridges and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, not just unsearchable, but how inscrutable are his ways. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who's given a gift to him that he might be repaid for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. See, see in these passages, God's saying something like this. Even though I will not answer your every question why. I'm not going to answer your every question why. I want you to recognize that I've revealed countless things about myself and my desires and my requirements in the Bible. And it's your responsibility to believe them and obey them and to do them trusting that my ways are always good, right, and just. That's what God is saying in these texts. So he's saying we're not always going to have answers to our whys. Now, there's many whys we do get answers to, but not all of them. So why does God do this in this text? We don't know. We just know in his plan that it is right and it's good and it's just because he's God. And he actually proves himself in the fact that the very first encounter in this new location bears spiritual fruit. He proves it. Undeniably in this confirmation with Lydia as they meet for prayer by the riverside. So let's pick this up in verse 11. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days. Let, let's just stop there for a minute. Now I can tell you in studying for this passage, this is the place where every commentary went into multiple pages of background on Greece and Macedonia and Alexander the Great and Rome, and we don't need to do that today. Actually, what I'd like to point out, though, is there's actually an interesting geographical development in God's calling to Macedonia that, that we might not always consider, especially being from the West. And that is that this is the first recorded missionary journey off the continent of Asia into Europe. That's what's going on. Gospel is moving into the underbelly of Europe. That's where it's going. And in this missionary journey, Paul is going to plant some incredibly important churches. 
and in the long range, if we think just about the, the broader history and development of Europe, what ends up happening? We, we have an entire continent that almost becomes a Christian continent and a location from which is actually serving as the primary base of missionary outreach for the rest of the world for a number of centuries. Interesting developments from the regions of Macedonia. Yet what's more amazing is all of this begins with a conversation with a woman outside the gates of the city by the river. That's where it all begins. Verse 13. And on the Sabbath day, they went outside the gate to the riverside where they were supposed, where they supposed, we supposed, there was a place of prayer. Like, we're hoping it's there, we're not sure. Place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. After this, she was baptized in her whole household as well. She urged us saying, if you judge me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Now, now, as we look at this account, let me point out a couple things. You notice Paul does not go to the synagogue in the city like he does, like every other time he visits the city. He, he doesn't go to the synagogue. He, he goes outside to this supposed place of prayer they're hoping to find. And they find this group of, of Jews and maybe some Gentile God-fears, which Lydia appears to be, praying on the Sabbath. And while this might seem a really small issue, it actually tells us something quite striking about the spiritual makeup of Philippi. It tells that the city is virtually devoid of Jews, or at least faithful Jews. It tells us that there's likely no Jews, or at least no faithful Jews, in Philippi, because historians tell us that all it took was a quorum of ten Jewish men to begin a synagogue. Ten. And given the fact that this prayer meeting by the river is happening with only women and converts to Judaism, whether they're Jewish, whether they're whether they're Jewish ladies or they're converts to Jews, it shows us that what is missing in this city is the most fundamental center of Jewish worship and culture and fellowship. It is a truly pagan city that they're going into. But as we press into Paul's interaction at this prayer meeting, we see a couple more things. Number one, in regards to first century culture, Paul is not walking in the ways of his culture. He doesn't blow off this gathering of God-fearing women who are praying by the river. He, he doesn't go off and pursue a predominantly male audience so he can stoke his ego. Focus on the people who really matter. Speaking in cultural terms of that day. No, 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 he, he, he seeks them out. He goes there, he's looking. He's happy to find a group of people that believe in God, that are worshiping God and praying to God. 
He's happy to find them. He's happy to share the gospel with them. And it makes a lot of sense when you realize he's working initially with a group of people who are holding the same religious values and beliefs. It's so much easier to work with somebody who already has a background in the promises of God in the Old Testament, of his promised Messiah. And he can now go and show them how those things come together and how they work and how Jesus fulfills them all. So it makes, it makes sense why he's going there, but it's even greater because it's a bunch of women and Paul happily does that. And we see this throughout the Gospels. We see this in Jesus' work. We see it throughout Acts. And we see it even in the epistles. The Christianity was constantly pushing back against the beliefs of the day. And how the church thought, whether it was about women or the oppressed or anybody else. Second, and more importantly to this, the storyline of our passage, is that throughout our passage, who's been the central actor in the passage? It's been the Holy Spirit, right? Paul and his party, they're, they're, they're travelers, and they're, they're bumping into doors, and doors are closed. They're bumping into doors. It's like, any, I mean, any kids ever play red light, green light? Right? You know, it's like, it's like red light and red light, red light. Like they can't go through. God opens green light to go up to Macedonia. But, 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 but the Holy Spirit doesn't just direct them for the place they need to go. It's God himself who opens Lydia's heart to respond to the gospel. God, again, is the actor. Proving proving that it is God himself who has led them to this place and that he is actively working in their ministry. Now, in saying this, I, I completely realize that, that there is disagreement again b- between gospel-loving Christians about how God works in these heart-opening passages. I, I get that. The question that's often wrestled with, is it, is, it, is it something that is resistible or irresistible? Well, if you've been at this church any length of time, you probably know where I land in this conversation. But we're not going there today because that's, I don't think, the center of where Luke is going. Those are good conversations. We need to have them. But I don't think that that's the center of where Luke's going today. Rather, I think what he wants us to see is that for all of our good and God-honoring efforts to serve God, to carry out ministry, to share the gospel with other people, he wants us to see that we are utterly dependent upon the personal and active work of the Holy Spirit in everything we do. I think that's at the center of this. Who's closed the doors? Holy Spirit. Who's directed them? The Holy Spirit. Who opened Lydia's heart? The Holy Spirit. I mean, don't get me wrong. Like Paul is a rock star. Theologically. He's incredible. He's got willpower like few of us have. But at the same time, even Paul can't can't cause in his own efforts for somebody to come to faith in Christ. A work of God is necessary. In fact, isn't this what we see Jesus saying at the very beginning of the book of Acts? 
with his disciples, resurrected from the dead. He's just finished teaching them about the kingdom of God. And he says, you don't have everything you need. You've been with me for three-ish years. You've heard me teach. But guess what? There's something you don't have and you need it. Therefore, go to Jerusalem and wait. Why? Because you're going to receive power. What do you not have right now? You don't have power. You're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. They need something they don't have. They don't, they don't have. It's the Holy Spirit. And we think, what, what does the Holy Spirit do? Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, starting in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that is the Holy Spirit, will, if I do not go away, the help of the Spirit will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Okay, so he's going to be sent. Now when he comes, what's he going to do? He's just going to be there to make us feel warm and fuzzy. When I sing songs I really like. No, no, no. He's going to be there to convict the world concerning sin. Convict. Convict the world concerning righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. Concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Holy Spirit's work, even here Jesus, I mean, we could, we could use the same words. It's to open hearts. It's to convince people there's actually a problem. Because the fundamental of mankind, the fundamental problem that mankind has is we don't think we have a problem. We don't think we have a need. We think we're naturally good people who just mess up once in a while. And that is not a biblical Christian of human answer, biblical for a biblical vision of, of human anthropology. No, we're desperately wicked. We're broken. We can't see. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. See, this is the fundamental reason why nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. As we began this entire series, nothing can stop the advance of the gospel. The question is why? It's because God is actively advancing his, his gospel through his spirit-empowered witnesses. God is advancing it. How is he advancing it? Through people. People are the means. We are the tools that God uses. And then, and then, but in that, it's still not of ourselves because the spirit is actively at work. That's what we see. Yet at the very same time, this helps us recognize the truth. And for some of us, this can be very, very helpful. We are not the determining factor in a person's response to the gospel. You and I are, will never be the determining factor in a person's response to the gospel. Now, qualifications do we need to know the gospel uh, answer is yes totally yes do we need to work on our gospel presentation so that we're able to give an account of our faith when required answer again is yes do we need to wrestle with hard questions and be loving and patient as we share the gospel with other people answer is yes 
We need to wrestle with hard things. We need to be able to take a long journey. Because the truth of the matter is, to what is, is it we see in our own experience that not everybody responds like Lydia, right? I mean, only if the gospel promise was share the gospel and somebody instantly comes to faith every time. That'd be fabulous. But we know it's not the case. But because the Spirit works doesn't mean that we give up really quick and easy. Oh, he must not be working. No. No, we don't have that excuse. Because we never know what God is doing. We know what God has told us. Share the gospel, share the gospel, and share the gospel. Do we need to be actively pursuing opportunities to share the gospel with the people around us? Again, the answer is yes. I mean, like, like, like Christians, that's like one of the most fundamental commands of being a Christian. Discipleship 101. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all I commanded you. How do you become a disciple? Well, first you've got to become a Christian. You've got to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Also, do we need to be put, able and willing to put in significant effort into our relationships and into our evangelism? The answer is yes. So you see, I'm, I'm raising all these because sometimes we can say, well, if the Holy Spirit is doing stuff in here and it's ultimately not up to me, then it doesn't matter how hard I try. It doesn't matter how much work I put into it. Well, if it's really up to God. We don't see that in Paul. He goes and goes and goes. And that needs to be an example for us. Not to give up too easy. Not to get tired, not to get lazy. What do we see in this text? We see the Holy Spirit's work in their life. We see that the Holy Spirit does work in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but his work is always dependent upon God's choosing and timing. Timing that doesn't always align with my desired timing. And if you want to talk about being impatient, man, I can be one of the most impatient people around. Just ask Colleen. So what I want to just, I just want to make this clear. We don't use these truths to in any way excuse our our call to share the gospel or to not share the gospel or to avoid ministry interactions. No, it doesn't work like that. Because what did Deuteronomy 29.29 tell us about trying to decipher the secret will of God? It said the secret things belong to the Lord. They're His. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we might do all the words of this law. That means the things that are clearly revealed to us as Christians are the things that are ours to do no matter what. And if there's some areas that we can't quite figure out how God will, God's will and God's, God works in it because he hasn't revealed, us, revealed it clearly to us, our calling is not to get absorbed with the things that, that God is never going to reveal to us, but to keep doing the things that he clearly tells us to do. Which as we can clearly see in Paul's ministry life, here, 
It's certainly evangelism. For us, this means actively pursuing our gospel mission. It means growing in maturity. It means actively sharing the gospel, devoting time in our life for active ministry in the body of Christ. That's what it means. Get involved in fellowship, expanding our fellowship interactions in the body of Christ. All of these things are commands. Yet at the same time, it means while we do everything we do for Christ, we don't merely look to our own energies and ability and wisdom as our source of hope of accomplishing these things. We look to God and his blessing and the work of the Holy Spirit because every single thing that we do is wholly dependent on him. So that's the call for Christians. Finally, in conclusion, if if you're with us today and you're not a Christian, there's also a clear call of God in his word, something that's been clearly revealed. It's a call to believe. The most clear expression and invitation of God in John 3.16, for God so loved the world, He gave his one and only son that whosoever believes, clearly revealed, whosoever believes will not perish but will have eternal life. That's a promise. And if you haven't done that, that is God's most clear and direct call for you today. If you haven't done that, I hope today would be the day. After service, come talk to me. I'd love to share. What What does it mean to believe? What is this gospel really about? Ryan and I are here. Prayer team are here. We'd happy, be very happy to share that with you. Let's close in a word of prayer.